Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 34, Crossing the Vaal and a finishing touch in Mapaking. The ongoing march north by Lord Roberts' army continues, and also we swing around to Mafeking just before Plumer's relieving force arrives, because the Boers have a surprise in store for the town's commander-in-chief, Lord Baden-Powell. The British had accomplished half their journey to Pretoria, and it was obvious that on the south side of the Vaal, no serious resistance awaited them. Burgers were freely surrendering themselves with their arms and returning to their farms again. Although, as we've already heard, many of these surrendered arms were dilapidated single-shot elephant guns or even muskets. Surrendering Boers were burying their valuable mauses and ammunition and biding their time. In the southeast of South Africa, Rundle and Brabant slowly advanced, while the Boers who faced them fell back towards the Vaal River. In the west, Hunter had crossed the Vaal at Winserton, and Barton's Fusilier Brigade had fought a sharp action at the Roydam, while Mahon's Mafeking relief column had slipped past the Boer flank, escaping the observation of the British public, but certainly and eventually not that of the Boers themselves. The casualties in the Roydam action were nine killed and thirty wounded for the British, but the advance of the Fusiliers was irresistible, and for once the Boer loss, as they were hustled from copy to copy, appears to have been greater than that of the British. The Boer forces fell back after the action along the line of the Vaal, making for Christiana and Blumhof in the far north of the Orange Free State Republic. Hunter entered into the Transvaal in pursuit of them, being the first to cross the border, with the exception of the raiding Rhodesians early in the war. Meanwhile, Methuen was following a course parallel to Hunter, but south, from Hoopstadt being the immediate objective. As Arthur Conan Doyle writes in his History of the Boer War, the little Union Jacks which were stuck in the war maps in so many British households were now moving swiftly upwards. And of course, he means north. In Natal, General Buller was moving towards the Biggersberg Mountains, defended by a few thousand Boers. Not less than 20,000 sabres and bayonets were ready and eager for the passage of the Biggersberg. This line of ragged hills is pierced by only three passes, each of which was held in strength by the Boer commandos, and Buller was highly aware by now of what damage these few thousand Boers could do to his force. I'll deal with that advance in the next podcast. For now, we're concentrating on the line directly through the Transvaal from Kronstadt, where we left the last podcast. It was on May 12th that Lord Roberts occupied Kronstadt, and he halted there for just over a week, for eight days, before he resumed his advance. At the end of that time, his railway had been repaired and enough supplies brought up to enable him to advance again, because, as you know, the Boers had been blowing up the bridges. The country through which the British passed swarmed with herds of cattle and flocks of sheep, and the British were hard-pressed not to loot. They were warned against stock theft, but this did not stop the outlying units from helping themselves here and there. The mercenaries fighting alongside the British and the Boers were, however, prone to stealing beef and mutton, although they left the womenfolk, both Boer and Black, alone. These outlying units continued to hand out pamphlets promising all peace would reign if they would just stop fighting. The punishment for British looting was prompt and stern, including being lashed and in some cases being shot. 
except when the commander demanded this as a form of revenge, which we'll see began to increase as this dirty war got dirtier. The terrible ethnic cleansing process which was to take place had yet to begin. That awaited Lord Kitchener's bloody fingers, a man who became one of the most hated on either side as he demanded scorched earth and concentration camps for the Boer women and children and black workers. It became a bitter game. Lord Roberts's eighth-day halt in the Free State town of Kronstadt was spent in consolidating the general military situation. We have already seen how Buller had crept upwards to the Natal border, and his next round of battles will await future podcasts. On the west, Lord Methuen reached Hoopstadt, and Major General Hunter reached Christiana, collecting arms as they went. So these three main advances, one through the Free State and into the Transvaal, headed by Lord Roberts in the centre, the second led by General Buller on the right through Natal, and the third featuring Methuen and Plumer in the west or on the left, where they advanced on Mafeking, all three continued apace. It was outside Mafeking that the Boers were forced to consider their immediate future, having besieged that town since the start of the war. Seven months of hell had been endured by the townsfolk, where thousands of shells had landed around their houses. Hundreds had died of starvation, mainly black citizens, while dozens had been killed by shells and the skirmishes. On April 31, 1900, Boer Transvaal commander Sarl Ilof had sent Baden-Powell a message saying, I see in the Bulawayo Chronicle that your men in Mafeking play cricket on Sundays and give concerts and balls on Sunday evenings. In case you would allow my men to join in the same, it would be very agreeable to me as outside Mafeking. There are seldom any of the fair sex, and there can be no merriment without their being present. Wishing you a pleasant day, I remain your obliging friend, S. Ilof, commander of Johannesburg Commando. To which... Baden-Powell wrote back and said, Sir, I beg to thank you for your letter of yesterday. I should like nothing better after the match in which we are presently engaged is over. But just now we are having, and so far have scored, 200 days not out against the bowling of Cronier, Snemon and Butter, and we are having a very enjoyable game. I remain yours truly, R.S.S. Baden-Powell. All this civility was to turn sour, Twelve days after Ilof had invited himself to the Sunday cricket match and dance in Mafeking. The action began just before dawn on the morning of the 12th of May, in that dark period between moonset and sunrise. The setting of the moon was important, as then the felt darkened precipitously. Ilof knew that Colonel Mahon was advancing ahead of Methuen's western force along with 2,000 mounted troops. This force had already reached Freiburg, which was less than a week's march to the south of Mafeking, so the Boers knew that time was running out for the units around the besieged town. Ilof had approached his commanding officer, General Sneemann, with a daring plan. The Boers would strike Mafeking through the black township called Die Stadt, following a feint against the eastern trenches, which he thought, and correctly, would confuse most of the British defenders. What he didn't know was that Baden-Powell was not to be one of those who would be totally confused. While the Stutt was one of Baden-Powell's blind spots because he had virtually starved the black population and asked them to try to escape, but Baden-Powell had raised the ire of the Boers by already arming black residents and even creating a black unit that fought around Mafeking. But 
Baden-Powell had not bothered to secure the black township near the Malopo River, an obvious point of entry into the town. And from the Malopo, through the township, lay the centre of Mafeking itself. That's because the Stadt was hidden behind the town and afforded the Boers an easy route into Mafeking, if only they could pass the outlying trenches without being spotted. That would be easy for a well-trained army. There were large boulders nearby and a deep river bank, which meandered close to town. But the plan required at least 700 Boers to work effectively, who would be led by fire-eating French and German volunteers, newly arrived from Beira and guided by black scouts along with a man who was to become one of the most hated of the era by the British. His name was Trooper Hay, who had recently crossed sides and joined the Boers and had provided them with a treasure trove of intelligence about what was going on in the town. Trooper Hay knew how to use the back door into Mafeking via the black township, the Stadt. His only problem was, if the British captured him alive, he would be shot on the spot as a traitor. At moonrise on the 11th of May, nearly 300 Boers crept up the bed of the Malopo River, unnoticed by the outposts of the defence. Ilof knew the steep bank was protection from view, so too the huts of the black residents, which would hide the force infiltrating towards the centre of town. However, he had a tactical conundrum. More than half the Boers had failed to arrive for the attack, despite General Snowman actually writing down the orders, which was almost unheard of and upset the old general no end. Ilof, you see, did not have a very high opinion of his commanding officer and had demanded the orders be written down and then delivered to the field cornets before he undertook this dramatic venture. Let's just say Ilof and Snowman suffered from issues of trust between the two of them. Forty of the 300 attackers were German and French mercenaries, soldiers of fortune under Baron von Weiss, who we'll hear about at the end of this podcast. Included in this group was the formidable Frenchman, the Comte de Fremont, along with deserter Trooper Hay. Some of the mercenaries had actually bumped into the Canadians at Beira. Remember last week how I recounted the Canadians and their circuitous trek from Cape Town to just north of Mafeking via Beira and Marandellas, then Bulawayo in Rhodesia. Beira was in Portuguese East Africa, or the modern-day Mozambique, which remained neutral during the Anglo-Boer War. So the Canadians and the French and Germans eyed each other suspiciously at the docks, and nothing further was done. Now they were to meet in Mafeking a few weeks later. The mercenaries had already arrived outside Mafeking while the Canadians were wending their way through Rhodesia. A diversionary attack or feint was led by Snaimon on the opposite side, the west of Mafeking, opening up with a heavy rifle fire and artillery just before dawn. When this fire died down, the defenders thought, well, all was quiet, and returned to their slumber. They'd faced nearly 220 days at this point of siege, and not once had the Boers attempted a full frontal attack. Why would they do so now? Baden-Powell, to his credit, was suspicious of the rifle fire out of the blue, and ordered his men to prepare for an assault elsewhere. His men were sure it was just a false alarm. Meanwhile, Elof and his 300 men were crawling on their bellies in a move that South African soldiers know as the leopard crawl. This went on along the Malopa River. Finally, the 300 arrived at the Stadt, which was comprised of huts. 
The Boers began to move between the huts, and at first no alarm was raised. The attack may have succeeded, except for a major blunder by Ilov at this point. He set fire to the huts. This had a number of secondary effects that the Boers had not thought through and came back to haunt them after this attack. Firstly, it was the equivalent of firing a flare right over where an attack was planned, and secondly, exposed the Boers to the bright light of the burning huts. A double disaster for Ilov. Perhaps worse, and third, it also incensed the black residents, who now fought the Boers alongside the white British soldiers. After all, they'd lost everything, and they wanted revenge. Crackling flames leapt up, lighting the scene like a searchlight. It was the agreed signal to Sneiman that the stut had been breached, but it was also a clear signal to the British about where the attack was concentrated. The garrison was roused, and perhaps one of the worst mistakes made by the attacking Boers was now clear. Elof had bypassed the two heavily armed outposts while crawling to the stut, which meant his route of retreat was now blocked, and no plan had been made to actually destroy or capture these redoubts. General Sneiman ordered the Boer artillery to shell the town, but it was only light shelling. He feared hitting his own men, as he had no idea just how far into town they'd progressed. Meanwhile, Elof's men had broken into three parties in the township, with his section the largest. He advanced towards the nearby Protectorate Regiment headquarters, which was the old police barracks, around half a kilometre from the centre of town. The moon had set, the sun was still below the horizon, it was pitch black. Baden-Powell was aware of the burning township, but still unaware of exactly how many points of attack there were. Chaos ensued as his carefully laid out communication plans went awry and small groups of men began hand-to-hand fighting in the town. In the protectorate barracks, Colonel Hall, the commanding officer, led three officers and 18 men who had been caught by Ilof's party and surrendered. Later, Hoy explained he was astounded and at first actually ignored the flitting shadows as the Boers moved into the barracks. Hoy and his men were locked in the storeroom with no windows and uh, proceeded, believe it or not, to crack open bottles of whiskey and wine while the Boers took possession of the barracks with its reinforced walls and loopholes. It was an ideal defensive position and Elof was in command there. He settled down to await Sneiman's reinforcements, which he believed would be rushing into town before too long. Baden-Powell had laid telephone lines to the barracks and repeatedly dialed the building, hoping to speak to Colonel Hall, who was by now starting to feel the effects of the whiskey in the storeroom and was locked away. The clerk in the barracks somehow managed to dial Baden-Powell back and said, The Boers are amongst us. Baden-Powell scoffed at the man until he heard, the unmistakable sound of Boer voices speaking Dutch right behind the frightened NCO. It sounds like a comedy of errors, but no one was laughing. Baden-Powell needed to get a message to Godley, the senior commander, but the telephone line to the latter was laid through Hawes Barracks. Baden-Powell had not planned on the Boers heading straight for his barracks in an initial attack. But Godley wasn't thought of as the best commander in the garrison for nothing. He had guessed what was going on and independently sent a message to the Protectorate Regiment reinforcements scattered around the town, and they arrived in force. The garrisons at Kanonkopi and the brickfields were called in, and then began the difficult task of rounding up the Boers. But where was General Sneiman and the Boer reinforcements? 
Civilians began arming themselves, and even the prisoners were released and given firearms, including Lieutenant Murchison, who had been charged with murder. Black township residents were also swarming around the town searching for Boers. They'd lost many of their family members in the arson attack, and they wanted revenge. They wanted blood for blood. Lady Sarah Wilson, who, as you know, survived being blown up by a shell while playing cards only a few weeks before, heard the sound of artillery and gunfire, and she wrote, To this awe-inspiring tune I dressed by the light of a carefully shaded candle to avoid giving any mark to our foes. In various stages of deshabille, people were running around the house seeking rifles, fowling pieces, and even sticks as weapons of defense. The waiter had dashed off with his rifle to his redoubt, taking the keys of the house in his pocket, so no one could get into the dining room to have coffee, except through the kitchen window. While Lady Sarah searched for her coffee grinder, Snayman's commandos arrived to support Elof's group, but they couldn't get further than Godley's western defences, and three hours after the attack began, Baden-Powell now knew exactly what was going on. He ordered that the three groups inside the town led by Elof be cut off from their reinforcements and from each other. Fierce rifle fire was kept up all morning, although the British literally stopped at one point to have breakfast. Hours later, inside the barracks, the situation was deteriorating. Elof and his men had no food or water and had suffered many wounded, and they had also taken to drinking the alcohol in the storehouse. One of the British prisoners, a veterinary surgeon, began to tend to the Boer wounded. A French mercenary then drunkenly grabbed a bottle of Burgundy and climbed on the roof of the barracks, shouting obscenities at the English. He was immediately shot in the stomach and bled to death on the roof. Inside the barracks, an almost farcical episode was described as the treasonous trooper Hay swaggered around with his former colonel's sword and belt, quaffing alcohol as bullets flew through the windows, while the French leader, Comte de Fremont, who had also fortified himself with wine, began to play the piano. As they say, real life is more bizarre than fiction. The hero of previous battles, Hamilton, was also taken prisoner earlier by the Boers and was sitting on the floor of the barracks, avoiding being shot by his own side. Sitting beside him on a case of Burgundy was Elof, who Hamilton describes thus. Chatting brightly to the prisoners and sympathising upon the fortune of war, he sat within the door upon a case of Burgundy, his legs dangling, his encoutrements jangling, and his spurs echoing the tic-tac of Morse rifles. Within our presence, the drama was slowly passing. Orderlies came and went, but the commandant, still tapping with his spurs, continued to issue his instructions and orders. He seemed to possess the complete master of the situation. At times... He lost control of himself and complained querulously in Dutch about the non-appearance of his reinforcements. What both Hamilton and Elof didn't know was that General Snaeman had called off the reinforcements. Far away and in safety, General Snaeman had muttered, Mora is noch a dag, or tomorrow is another day, when one of the field cornets begged him to storm the town. He knew if Elof and his 300 were taken prisoner, there would be 300 more mouths to feed for the British. 
It would also serve the brash youngster right and keep him out of the general's way. But the reality was it was already too late. The British garrison was wide awake and any reinforcements would have been cut up by the artillery and machine guns ready to fire on any men foolish enough to rush the town to try and save Elof. Things moved quickly as Colonel Godley's men, along with black residents from the Stutt, surrounded 27 Boers sheltering in a nearby cattle yard close to the barracks. Three squadrons of the Protectorate Regiment encircled the yard and demanded the surrender of the Boers, but they refused. However, as the squadrons rushed the barracks, a white flag was raised by the Boers. Then the black residents who'd faced the Boers earlier in the morning and seen their friends and relatives killed and their homes burnt forced their way through the squadrons in an attempt to kill the 27. The British commander interposed himself between the Africans and the Boers and managed to stop a massacre. In fact, During the fighting that day, black residents who were armed were regarded as one of the main reasons why the garrison had managed to defend itself so well. There goes the theory once more that this was an exclusively white man's war. As Brian Gardner writes in his book Muffy King, A Victoria Legend, the Africans, in fact, played a part only just second to that of the four squadrons of the Protectorate Regiment during the fight. Small parties of Boers were rounded up one by one hiding in a dugout near the river, another caught trying to slip out of town, and more lying below the Malopa river bank. Godley was told to let one large party of Boers go near the river, as the British were aware they could not feed prisoners, so more than 100 Boers made their escape. That left the barracks where Elof remained with his 73 exhausted and thirsty commandos. The Boers asked for medical assistance, and a certain nurse Crawford at her women's and children's hospital nearby rushed to assist. She had no experience in dressing wounds, but was quickly forced to tend those with terrible injuries, and even began amputating limbs on a tea table. I'm going to spend a podcast concentrating on the heroism of these nurses. Crawford, for example, was binding the wounds of both British and Boer and coming under fire from both sides at times as she rushed back and forth. War is surely madness, as all of those who've experienced it will attest. By now it was late afternoon and Elof knew the game was up. He was incensed by what he regarded as the betrayal of his general and at 6pm he went to Hall, locked in the storeroom, let him out, and then surrendered. Hall was astonished, as he had no idea what had happened for the last few hours and believed the Boers had stormed the town successfully. At first, Hall's shouting to his fellow British fell on deaf ears, almost literally as they had fired hundreds of rounds at each other and their ears were ringing from the violence of the battle. Eventually, Hawes strode to the door of the barracks, flung it open, and yelled, Cease fire! At that moment, the firing stopped. The Boers lost their initiative. Twelve hours earlier, they had the town in their grasp, but once more, poor motivation on the side of a hesitant general had cost them dearly. The Boers lost 59 killed and wounded, and 108 prisoners of the 300 attackers, an extremely high casualty rate for them. The British lost 22, including 18 black residents, or soldiers, depending on your point of view. And the defenders were now jubilant. As the 108 Boer prisoners were marched to jail, they were surrounded by black and white townsfolk, who jeered and booed, and they had to be protected from the mob. That night, Elof and his officers were asked to appear before Baden-Powell at dinner. 
According to all, a pleasant evening was spent. The German officer who was captured, Baron von Weiss, asked Baden-Powell to release him as he was on leave from his unit in Germany and wanted to return home. Baden-Powell refused. After dinner, the Boer officers were escorted to a luxurious house where they slept and the next morning they breakfasted with Lady Sarah Wilson. All this while the residents of the Stadt picked up the pieces of their gutted homes and buried their dead. Furthermore, the Frenchmen who'd fought with the Boers immediately complained about the food. Elof had actually washed his hands in the breakfast porridge, thinking it was soap and water, it was so thin, so perhaps the French mercenaries could be forgiven. Baden-Powell wrote a famous note to General Snellman, which was composed before a full count of prisoners. He had more than he thought, and the note went, I have the honour to inform you that in the fight yesterday, a number of burghers were killed and wounded, and that I have 90 prisoners. He actually had 108. In conclusion, I would like to record my admiration of the gallant way in which your burghers fought yesterday. The last of the gentlemen's wars was grinding onwards, and within two days of this letter, Mafeking would be relieved. And there we will end this week's podcast. Next week, the siege of Mafeking will be lifted, and a new verb will enter the Webster Dictionary to Mafeking, or to leap about in happiness. Until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and have a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com. You can mail me directly there, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar jou transval, daar waar mijn sarie woont.